continue today heading through uh, the book of Nehemiah. And we've gone through two weeks, three chapters. We began the journey uh, in confession like we do uh, oftentimes in worship. Uh, Nehemiah lamented what was going on. He lamented the fact that the walls had been torn down and that the gates had been burned. And he confessed as he prayed to the Lord that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they had sinned against God, and and that's what led to the destruction. Then we journeyed with Nehemiah last week as he left his high position as a cupbearer to the king. And he made a request to the king to leave that position for a period of time and that the king would even give him all the the things that were needed to provide for the building of the gates and the reconstruction of the walls and even the building of Nehemiah's own home. We recognize how Nehemiah's leaving of a high position mirrors that of, of Christ who left his high position to secure safety and salvation for us, his people. And this week we continue this journey through Nehemiah, focusing on the oppression, uh, the opposition, actually, the opposition that Nehemiah and the people experienced as they worked to do uh, the will of the Lord, which was to rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates. So let's head to chapter 4. In the Black Pew Bibles, they should be uh, page 385. Students have their Bibles. That'd be page 568. Let's hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring those stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near to them came and told us ten times over, 
wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and fights for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies had heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the walls. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each of us had his weapon even when he went to the water. we kind of begin to see that the opposition just seemed to increase. Earlier in chapter 2 last week, we noted that there was some opposition. It was in chapter 2, verse 19, we saw that Sanballat, the same guy that was talked about here in chapter 4, Tobiah, and then Geshem of the Arabs, which was referenced here, mocked and ridiculed, but, but now two chapters further, there's more individuals that are mentioned, more nations that are represented. We had Sanballat, and we had Tobiah, and we had uh, other individuals as well. Uh, I guess I didn't have it up there. Yeah, we have the Ammonites, and we have, um, where was, I lost my spot. Well, we have five nations essentially represented. And what it really means is that these five nations are Judah's five borders, not including the border of the Jordan River. And it means that every nation that surrounds Judah, surrounds these people of Israel, are now against what Israel is doing, what the Jewish people are doing in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. These neighboring nations of Sanballat and Tobias and Geshem, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the people of Ashdod, all of these individuals from separate nations join forces in stopping what is happening in Jerusalem. All these neighboring nations mock and, and, and desire the work to stop. The people within the walls that are rebuilding the walls continue to experience this 
persistent opposition, this persistent pressure. And the people begin to feel the weight. The people begin to experience the weight of the insults, mocking the wall that they're creating, saying that it could fall down if even a fox jumped on it, mocking the height of the wall, that it wouldn't be effective for what it's supposed to do. And so the, the people prayed. The people prayed that God would, would take those insults, take those comments that these neighboring nations had, and turn them back on the people who were making them. But as time passed, perhaps the people started looking at all that needed to be done. They saw that the wall was only half the height that it should be. They saw that there were gaps in the walls that were low points, and perhaps they began to believe the opposition. Perhaps they started to take those words to heart, realizing we're never going to get this done. It seems like it's taking forever. We're working from sun up to sun down, and it seems like no progress is being made, that, that nothing is happening very quickly. The work that we have is, is too big. The amount of people we have to work on it is too small, and, and this is going to take forever to finish. And the people, the strength of the laborers started giving out. They realized or they, they thought that what the opposition was saying was true, that they're never going to be able to finish the project that they're never going to be able to do enough work to get it done, that they're never going to be able to make these dead stones which are burned with fire come back to life. I wonder if we've experienced any of that ourselves. Maybe we've witnessed it, maybe we've experienced it in our own life where you get excited about this big project, this something that, that you feel called to do. And, and excitement lasts for a little while. The, the first steps through the project are going so well. Often it happens in renovations in your home, right, when you're doing them yourself and the excitement of ripping things down and, and picturing it in your mind, what will we built anew, but as your long hours of working during the day and working at home at night continue, the motivation wanes. The desire, the desire to see it happen somehow drifts away as maybe you realize how big a project you actually overtook. Opposition probably doesn't come in the form of your neighbors mocking you for taking a part of some of your house. It probably doesn't come in the form of your own children saying, Dad, why are you not doing anything, right? The opposition for our own projects likely comes from within when we realize that the project was bigger and that there's ant issues that we have to deal with or termite damage or mold or, or something that comes up that we weren't expecting. 
we sit there looking at the project that is undone. Or maybe we've experienced something like this within the church or some type of business. When we, when we desire to maybe shift the mission or the vision of an organization and, and we're, we're pushing hard for that very thing. We did that uh, before I arrived. There was a new mission statement here four years ago. We live for God, we love our neighbors, and we lead people to Christ. And the excitement we have as we, we move forward and we put it on the wall and we put it on shirts and we, we see this, but sometimes even too, as, as we go through year by year, our excitement for a mission can sometimes slow down. It sometimes can slow down as we as a church experience opposition, as there's initial excitement for the new thing, for, for the new to see justice worked out in the lives of our community. But, but opposition comes as, as we as a church make stands on things. We're excited when it goes up, but the minute we start experiencing some pressure, from within our community or from outside of the church, sometimes we wonder, is, is the new thing, is the new mission that we're called on to promote justice here in this world, to promote God's righteousness, to see God's grace in his love evident in the world, is the pressure worth it? is experiencing disparaging comments about what we do as a church worth it? Is worth posting statements about a desire to see justice in the world worth it when we experience backlash? We look back at these statements and we think of them perhaps as rubble that's crumbling down to the ground, is it worth it? Passion begins to wane. Our de desire to do different and to seek justice may slow down because maybe we thought it should be easier than what it is. Maybe we think, can we bring the stone of justice to life against the pressure that we feel. Because generally what it seems is that the, the more progress that's made, the more people come out of the woodwork or the rubble from within or from without to, to push back and, and put their foot down and to, to see things not go any further just like we see here in the book of Nehemiah. What started with three nations now is, is more. More people who are angry at the work that is being done by God's people. More individuals that are now beginning to, to plot and scheme the destruction that could happen. The, the desire to get within midst of the people of Israel and to stop it all together, to make sure that these dead stones never come to life, to make sure that the, the rubble that's lying 
and the ground would stay there forever. And this is the situation that Nehemiah was called into as he headed from his high position to enter a position where he was experiencing day after day, night after night, opposition. People desiring him to not continue. People desiring that his people, the Israelites, the people in Jerusalem would die, that their work would not continue. But the thing that Nehemiah remembered amidst all of this is that they were not relying on his own direction. They were not relying on Nehemiah in his abilities alone. Instead, they were relying on the Lord. They were, they were undertaking a task that had been designated and would be empowered by the God that they served. And so, and so not only did they pray that, that God would intervene, but they didn't just wait they didn't just stop what they were doing, waiting for God to intervene with these oppressive neighbors, these oppressive na uh, nations. Instead, they, they adjusted what they were doing. They recognized that the Lord was their strength, but even though the Lord was their strength, the Lord uses people to enact his will in the world. And so he, he pivoted and had people with half the people doing the work and half the people guarding the walls. Half the people would continue the progress of laying stone by stone, filling in the areas that had gaps, creating a wall higher than half its height, but continuing to the full height, and the others would be stationed around watching for those who were coming watching for the, the people who desired to see the work stop, watching by night and by day for those who would, would come and attack. They took precautions to see to it that the work would be done. And, and Nehemiah, he kept one individual close to him pretty much at all times, and it was the one person who could warn everybody, the one person who had, who had the horn that if they saw an invading army coming, they would be able to blow it and rally the troops, so to speak, to the area that they would not be picked off one by one or individual by individual by those attacking, but that they could move as one force directed here by the Lord, not only in building, but in defense. I think it's something to note here that as Nehemiah gathered people together, as he had half people working and, and half the people with swords and spears and bows, that they didn't go out on the offensive. There was no preemptive strike, so to speak. There was, there was no, we think this nation's going to come today, so we should go attack them first. No. They stayed within the walls, did their work, 
and were prepared for just to send people. They weren't going to go out and attack. They were going to just be prepared to defend themselves when they were attacked. Nehemiah does something else here, too. He desires to increase the morale. He, he gathers the people together. He, he says to the people, they're all one body. They're looking at each other, perhaps face to face, seeing all the different families that are in their midst and recognizing that it's the Lord that will work among them by, by way of God's empowerment through the people to protect one another from whatever will come that they would, would see the faces of, of their children and their neighbors and their uncles and their aunts and their grandparents, that they would see the faces of the priests and recognize that they are all one body together defending themselves by the power of the Lord from anything that would come into their midst. I wonder if that time they would recognize and, and think back to other stories where God would empower a group of people for a task. Maybe it was thinking of Gideon. As, as Gideon followed the Lord, and God, the Lord empowered individuals for a task without even having to raise a sword. Even amidst this oppression, even amidst this empowerment, I think the people knew. The people knew from following the Lord for many years that, that it was true they couldn't build everything in a day. That it was true that, that they couldn't on their own make these stones come to life. That they couldn't on their own protect one another. They needed to rely on the Lord, and it was the Lord who had pushed them through so many other things that seemed impossible. It was the Lord who brought their people out of exile and slavery in Egypt. It was the Lord who provided a way through the, the Red Sea when there didn't seem to be one possible. It was the Lord who had provided food for them when they were in the desert. Not only meat, but also the, the manna that they were able to eat. The Lord had provided for them in the past, and the Lord would provide for them and care for them and empower them for today. They didn't need to make the dead stones come to life as those oppressors thought they needed to. Because it was going to be the Lord that made those dead stones come to life. And that's, I think, true for us too. When we think of any opposition that we're going to face as we, we work God's will, we don't need to make the dead stones of justice and inequality come to life on our own. We don't need to make the dead stone of God's all-encompassing love come to life on our own. We don't need to make God's grace come to life on our own because we are working alongside the Spirit, the Spirit working within us as God brings His 
his kingdom here in this world each day and each hour, revealing it as a new, bringing new stones to life that were once dead, confronting those things were once injustice in bringing justice, confronting those things that that were once hate in bringing in a love and a care, ushering in and taking those stones that used to be grudges and turning them into something that is his grace evident here in the world. It's the Lord who brings those dead stones to life. It's the Lord who reveals his kingdom hour by hour, day by day, moment by moment, by way of his people. In First Peter chapter 2, we hear this. You also, living stones, not dead, piled up rubble, but living stones are being built up just as the Israelites were building those walls in Jerusalem, just as they were building them to protect the temple. Here it is Christ himself who is building us into a body, into a temple of the Lord, one where we offer spiritual sacrifices, and our spiritual sacrifices are are not those sacrifices of animals like they were before, but our spiritual sacrifice is our very life itself as as we choose to, to live for God, as we choose to take the Spirit's direction as the Lord leads us each and every day by way of, of His Spirit. Into, into different moments that we're bringing the presence of God, that we're desiring to bring his kingdom afresh in these areas. The people are not dead stones lying on the ground, but are a temple to the Lord himself, bringing life, life-giving, our life-giving nature, the, the Savior himself coming with us each and every place. I, I can think of a, a story of perhaps a, a life-giving nature that just happened this past week. It was the first Wednesday night in the park that we had, and we had a variety of, of people that were there. And, and one of my neighbors came by, and she ended up walking alongside someone she didn't know, someone that wasn't connected to our church. And this individual said, uh, to my neighbor, hey, are you part of that church? And she said, well, no, not really, but when you're friends with the pastor, you just kind of go hang out with him. And this individual then said to my neighbor, well, I think it's really cool what they're doing. They're, they're coming into the park here to just show love to the community. And it's not just for themselves, it's not just for their own kids or their own people, but they actively are inviting other kids to participate, showing, showing that God's love isn't just for one group of people, but God's love is for all of his creation. A beautiful story, I think, of God's kingdom, God's all-encompassing love that's so high, so wide, so deep that, that we cannot even understand it 
and that we have an opportunity to join with him and care for people through simple things like having crafts for kids. By inviting kids on the playground to play nine square in the end. By inviting kids in to to create a simple craft that they can take home with them. By handing out popsicles of all things. Opportunities, simple opportunities where God works through his people to change perhaps the perception of who the church is for. Opportunities where God works within us saying that the church is for the life of the world. That that the church is here to bring the dead stones within the world to life by his grace and through his power, not just for us, but for all creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave his life for the sake of the world, and it is our opportunity to join with him as his living stones to, to live in a way that honors him in caring for the world, the, the creation and its people to show his love, to show his grace, to bring his justice, to bring his mercy, to show his righteousness within the world. That all comes through one name, Jesus Christ. My prayer this week, and I'm going to encourage you to, to think about ways where you can partner with what God is already doing. Maybe you already pray. And that's a good thing. I'm asking you to add on five minutes of prayer for the next five days. And if you don't pray, five minutes, and it's not a very long time, five minutes for five days to, to start a new practice, specifically praying for how God is desiring to use you to take those dead stones and bring them to life. How God is asking you to, to partner with what he's already doing to make the realization of his kingdom more present on earth today and tomorrow than it was before. It's us joining with him, partnering with him, not by our own strength, but by his power. And he gives us the power to, to work through the any opposition, any barrier that comes in our way, because it is God who is all-powerful who works in you. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you that you give us an example of perseverance in the book of Nehemiah. Perseverance that they can continue to do the work that you set out before them. And it's our prayer for perseverance in our life, that amidst opposition, amidst difficult circumstances, amidst things that don't seem to be going the way we had hoped, that you will continue to empower us for your work. That your kingdom be maybe more realized today than it was yesterday. That your kingdom here on earth would be just as it is in heaven. 
in Christ's name that we pray through the power of the Spirit.